Welcome to Lightning in a Bottle, a podcast that addresses the needs of business owners before, during, and after they sell their company. As a business owner, you owe it to yourself, your family, and your employees to know your options, to be informed, and to plan early. We hope you enjoy this program, and if you have any questions, feel free to drop us a line by visiting our team's website at www.ubs.com forward slash ATX. This is your host, Josh Pottinger, and joining me is my longtime business partner, Jason Georgianis, and together we run ATX Wealth Partners, a private wealth management team here focused on being a trusted resource for business owners, entrepreneurs, and the professional advisors that surround them. Okay, everyone, joining us today is Tom Hall. Uh, Tom is the head of our UBS Philanthropy Services and with over 12 years experience working with and advising private clients, he also leads our United Kingdom Philanthropy Services to help clients identify and achieve their philanthropic and impact investing strategies. And prior to joining UBS in 2013, he spent his career in the nonprofit sector. So our topic today is around philanthropy, and there's a lot to unpack today, and we're very excited to have Tom on the line today. So welcome, Tom. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for the invite, Josh. Tom, we've got a a bit of a time difference here. It's 9 a.m. here. What time is it over there? Just gone 3.15. 3.15. Quarter past three. Okay. Well, good deal. Yeah, with the time difference, it's been uh, fairly easy to navigate, you know, with with, with our calendars and everything. But uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate. So let's go ahead and get started and uh, tell us a little bit about your background on yourself and, and how UBS supports clients on their philanthropic journey and how we serve clients in this regard. Yeah. So, I mean, very, very quickly about me. I mean, I spent my, my whole career, I suppose, rather naively wanting to try and change the world. And realized quite quickly that that one of the best ways to do that is to partner with you know entrepreneurs, wealth creators who've been passionate about the area that they're working in, often made way more resources than they were expecting to, and then have then been looking to deploy those resources in a way to have an impact on the, on the problems, whether that's locally, nationally, or globally, that they're that they're concerned and passionate about. And I I was fortunate to work in the nonprofit space for about a decade earlier on in my career, a whole variety of different cause areas from health and literacy through to microfinance in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And then I got a call from UBS. And uh, to be honest, I was, I was a little bit reluctant to move over to a, to a financial services institute. And I was like, oh, why, why would I want to go and do that? And actually, the, you know, for me, the biggest motivation was I'd, I'd probably worked with about 50 um, wealthy individuals on their philanthropy in my time uh, in the nonprofit world, and it, you know it's actually always quite hard actually when you're working in a nonprofit to get access to to those kinds of you know, wealth creators who can really have a huge impact on on particularly small organizations. I mean, when I was in microfinance, you know, we were a hundred thousand dollar a year charity, and and that scaled up rapidly thanks to the investment of of some key supporters. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think when I started to think about the idea of being able to work at the largest wealth manager in the world. You know, access to half the world's billionaires, and to be able to support and advise them on how to use their resources to have more impact, then it started to get pretty exciting. And, I, and I'm I'm so glad I took that that move across to, to financial services. Uh, it's, it's actually actually been a benefit for me, really. You know, uh, on a number of levels, I'm, I'm quite commercially minded and, and enjoy and enjoy this sector. And we've really, you know, over the last twenty years as a business serendipitously like i think it's not all been strategic or there's there's been a lot of strategy behind it i think because we're the largest wealth manager in the world we are super motivated by what what it's important to private clients and there's just there's been a boom of wealth creation right so we've seen huge wealth creation over the last 30 years you know the the total value of global billionaires has gone from one trillion i think it's up to eight now in the last 15 years so that, and that's just at the, the, the top end, right? And that's happened all the way down the, the wealth curve. And the other thing that we've seen mirrored in that is that people seem to want to use some, and in some cases, almost all of the resources that they they generate through wealth creation for their legacy 
for philanthropy, right? So we're seeing a huge, almost exponential growth in a focus on philanthropy over the last uh, you know, 10 to 15 years, uh, particularly driven by, by uh, new entrepreneurial wealth creation. Of course, there's always been uh, legacy philanthropy, and I think in the US in, in particular, you know, there's been, been a, a really rich history of, of philanthropy, and, and of course, we still support those families. But to capture that, I think what UBS has done is just try to put the same kind of discipline around philanthropic advice and support as you'd expect within financial services, right? Like, how do you actually take those hard-won resources, you know, often like a life's work, and start deploying them in a completely new sector and field to try and solve for social, environmental um, or other problems that people are concerned with. It's not actually as straightforward as people realize. So so in a nutshell, like where we're at today is we've got 70 people globally who are dedicated to supporting our clients on uh, their philanthropy. And we do that through really expert advice. So what does good philanthropy look like? And I'm sure we'll touch on some of that in this in this podcast. Insight experiences, you know, actually meeting other philanthropists, going to events. I mean, obviously with COVID, that's been somewhat more difficult. <laughs> we've done a lot of webinars. Right. And as you mentioned, actually, funny enough, I think we've been doing more things globally in a collaborative way because people have gone, oh, well, I can just be on calls and time zones don't matter so much. Last night, I was like on something at nine o'clock with 5,000 FAs or something for, for asset management. Uh, you know, so we can have these shared experiences you know, we take clients out to visit far-flung places like Liberia and look at programs in the field that are having systemic impact. And then I think really completely unique to UBS is we've we've really built out what I call an execution platform. So we don't just talk about philanthropy. We enable our clients to, to execute on their philanthropy, to do it. And, and what does that look like in practice? Obviously, things like donor advice funds. We have a network of global donor advice funds to just make philanthropy easier and more efficient. And we also have something called the UBS Optimus Foundation, which I would say is the jewel in the crown of our philanthropy offering, because some of those 70 people I mentioned, there's about 30 who are dedicated to doing due diligence on what I call um, high-impact philanthropic investment opportunities. So you know, evidence-based non-profit or sometimes even for-profit interventions that can address some of these issues that, that our clients are seeking to solve for because um, actually it can sometimes be super difficult to, to actually pick you know a charity and, and again i'm sure we'll touch on, on some of that in the course of this conversation right tom good day it's jason how are you hey jason yeah i'm good thank you Excellent. In your intro there, you, you mentioned the word, the term impact a number of times, whether it be an entrepreneur who's striving to make an impact or your own desire to make an impact. And then uh, towards the tail end of that, when you introduced briefly the Optimus Foundation, its desire to focus on making high impact and collaborating with different organizations. So clearly that's the term that's often used when we speak of philanthropy and, and solving social issues. Take it a step further. How, how do you and UBS Philanthropy, the team that you're working with, how do you think of about impact in a in a philanthropic context? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And of course, you know, impact isn't just limited to to philanthropy. I mean, impact is about ultimately trying to address you know some of the the, the big problems the world's facing, right? Like whether that's that's locally, nationally, or globally. One frame for impact that we're increasingly using at UBS, which I think is helpful, is the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which were developed about three years ago. And they really encapsulate, you know, a whole variety of issues. There's 17 of them, you know, thinking about education or issues with the environment or healthcare or poverty or things like social justice issues like anti-trafficking. All of these different problems have been encapsulated within within the within the Sustainable Development Goals. And it's really actually been quite helpful because it it's almost defined the kind of world we want to see by 2030 and given us a way of saying, you know, how much progress have we made towards that world, right? And I think so a lot of the impact that we measure, that we encourage our clients to measure against, because actually whether they know it or not, they're often contributing to, to those goals. They, they, they actually, oftentimes they don't know that they're doing that, but they are, right? So we, we point that out. But I think just taking a step back, one of the starting places we, we, we come out with this is that, is that, you know, to have an impact with your philanthropy, it's not enough just to be philanthropic, right? Of course, it's great that people are philanthropic and nobody has to give their money away. And I often, you know, re remind people of this, particularly sometimes we have skeptical media about wealth creation. Like nobody has to be philanthropic. It's their money. It's hard earned. Like they don't need to give it away. And so many people choose to do so. And that is great that they're making that decision. But, you know, you can actually 
cause as much harm as do good with your philanthropy if you're not careful, right? So the first rule when you're trying to have impact with your philanthropic capital is avoid harm. How, how do you do that? Well, ultimately, you've got to measure the effect of when you make a donation. And, you know, a good example, I suppose, of, you know, where we've seen philanthropy having unintended consequences and, and causing harm. Um, we saw, actually, it was, in the, it, was in the, it was in the late noughties, a lot of money was poured into this idea called play pump. It was a roundabout that was going into wells on, in African villages. And the idea was that, that the kids would, would play on this, you know, round ball that would you'd go round and round and round and they would have a lot of fun and it would also pump water. Uh, looks great on the marketing pictures. Loads of people love the idea. They gave loads of money towards it. And actually what happened, unfortunately, is it turned out that they were taking out the hand pumps, which were kind of fairly easy to use, and putting in these heavy roundabouts, which the kids actually got bored playing on. And then the old people couldn't push. <laughs> and then they broke. And, and actually had like, like oh villages littered in Africa with these roundabouts. And people then, instead of having more access to water, had less because people hadn't tested out you know, their cool idea properly, right? So, so like nobody wants to be on the wrong side of a philanthropic investment that causes harm like that. And the only way you can, uh, you can avoid that is to measure, right? So when you want to unpack this word impact, it's really important to understand what makes up impact. Now, oftentimes in, in the whole nonprofit space, we, we tend to talk about impact, we, or we tend to talk about the, you know, how great charities and nonprofits are based on how much funds they've raised. So you often hear like they had the gala dinner and it raised 10 million and isn't that brilliant? Well, that is an input, okay? It's, it's neither here nor there. Of course, it's better to get more inputs if you can, because presumably you can do more with that money. But that really depends on what you spend that money on. So if you raise your $10 million and you then go and invest it in it, often you invest it in activities. So charities are, are usually very good at saying, you know, if you give me X hundred thousand dollars, we will do this, this activity. I don't know. Let's say we'll, we'll train some teachers and they will then go and, uh, you know, provide some form of education for, I don't know, like 100 kids, let's say. Is that impact? Well, no, actually, it's not. It's just an output. It's an activity. You don't know whether that's achieved anything. You only know whether your, your input, the money you've raised, and the money you've spent on activities is starting to have an impact if you can measure the, the actual outcome. Like, what's the change? So let's just use that education example because it's kind of easy. You funded the teacher, and you've, you know, the teachers have, has, has taught 100 kids but until you know whether they're actually learning or not, you don't know whether that money was, was, was well spent, right? So you have to measure, you know, whether they're learning. So, you know, one way of doing that, you'd say, okay, what were their grades when we started this teaching program and, and have they improved? Because that would be one way of seeing whether at least they're going up. Because if they're going down, you're definitely not do, doing well. And by the way, we've seen programs in like places like Liberia where millions is being spent and, and you're getting a 15% literacy rate. So this happens, like it goes completely, completely wrong when you don't control for it. But even then, you might not have had a good value impact, right? Like, how do, you, how do you prove that that impact wouldn't have happened anyway? So so oftentimes, you have to measure quite accurately against maybe a control group or a, a baseline to show whether um, that impact wouldn't have happened anyway. So, for example, you may see that your kids are going from a C grade to a B grade, but then actually maybe all of the kids in the whole country went from a C grade to a B grade. So you've spent money and actually the kids who were in the schools you weren't funding went up anyway, right? So you, you, you've actually not really achieved anything. So what you want to know is, am I spending money on things that's making a difference that wouldn't have happened anyway, right? And that's where you start to get into different types of, of evaluation where you're really proving out that you made a change. And ideally, you want to prove that you've made a change as cheaply as possible. And that's where we start to talk about like the price of impact or the price of an outcome. Um, you know, and, and you, can, you can start to get quite scientific there. You can say, well, like, I could spend $100 on one nonprofit and take a child from a C to a B grade for $50, or I could get another one who can do it for $40. Well, obviously, you should choose the one that can do it for $40 because they're more cost effective. Yeah? So you start to really mm -hmm. get into quite a lot of analysis around the impact. And that's super important because that is critical for your pathway into scale, which is one of the most important parts of really driving impact. Because ultimately, you know, impact is a factor of quality and scale, because you want to both show improvement, but you want to do it as cost of as many people, or, you know, if it's the environment, as big a space as possible, in order to, to maximize the social and environmental return you're getting from the money you're investing.
It's very interesting. I love the impact versus inputs because I think a lot of us think about, you know, we're just looking at the inputs, but really, you know, we want to make sure we're having an impact on that, on that, uh, on that initiative. And so when you are evaluating a, a nonprofit out there and you know, you think about the lessons that you've learned over the years. I remember you mentioning another unintended consequence about a mosquito net. Maybe you can you can share with us, which I thought was interesting. But when you're getting ready to make an investment, I'm sure there's got to be a lot of conversation with the folks running it to really drill down on how to evaluate, how often to evaluate, and measuring that impact so that they know so it's clear, right? So maybe you can kind of walk us through through that. Yeah, no, sure. So the mosquito net example, actually, that you mentioned, I, I saw that firsthand when I was working in Malawi. There were you, you drive along the shores of Lake Malawi and see these blue mosquito nets hanging up over people's houses. And unfortunately, what had happened is is some philanthropists had invested in mosquito nets, which of course, when they when they're implemented well, they can save lives really cheaply. But unfortunately, these ones didn't have a good distribution strategy. So they ended up in the black market. The local fishermen thought they looked like great robust nets and they started fishing with them. And there's you know, quite, a, quite a lot of evidence that they, that they poisoned the, the lake uh, and the ecosystem and, and indeed even potentially poisoned the, the, the fish and the people who ate the fish, right? So again, you know, one of those horrible <laughs> unintended consequences right. you really don't want to be on the wrong end of. And, and you can control for that based on you know, the, you know, the plan to make sure that, that, that those things are well implemented and measured. I think that the heart of your question is there's two things really. There's the kind of management, monitoring and evaluation, good processes, which is really kind of about internal systems within the nonprofit. How are they measuring things to ensure that it's well implemented, right? And that's often about kind of having a good KPI framework. So when we make a grant from our foundation, for example, which we often do on, on behalf of clients, the Optimus Foundation is primarily client money that we've advised on, that within we grant in partnership with our clients, we put in place you know, contracts with nonprofits to, to have a KPI framework that will very much look at some of the activities they're going to do that we think will lead to uh, measurable outcomes, right? Which is the building blocks of impact. But then you'll also have a secondary part. And, and, and often people think that that is impact measurement. It's not really. That's just good management, right? The impact measurement is a separate thing that happens whereby ideally it's not the organization itself that's measuring this. It's an external party that is is coming in and, and looking in a completely objective way as to whether that intervention is actually working. So, you know, let's let's say implementing mosquito nets, you would be measuring that population. You'd probably either do a baseline, so you'd look at, okay, I don't know, like rates of malaria before you had your big net distribution, and then you would measure rates of malaria afterwards, something like that, right? And then you could make a case for the fact that because you've implemented your nets really well, those rates of malaria have gone down, if that's what you're seeing. To properly prove that that was because of your nets, you would probably... And, and this is where standard of evidence and quality of impact becomes um, higher. Uh, you probably also want to have a whole other area as a control, right? That didn't have anything happen to it so that you could, you could actually properly show causality. And this idea of causality is really common. We, we see it in, in pharmaceuticals all the time, right? You can't bring a new drug or in the case of COVID, it's pretty topical right now, a new vaccine to market without a third stage clinical trial. And that is, a, that is exactly what I'm talking about. It's, it's a trial that shows the efficacy of an intervention and can prove out the, the change that it's making. In the philanthropic landscape, you know, up until really the mid-noughties, we just didn't see this level of rigor. But actually, over the last 15 years, this is becoming increasingly common. And now we are really able to say, you know, this intervention works, this one doesn't seem to, and there's a data set that says why. And of course, the implications of that are you really shouldn't be funding things that have got data that say they don't work, right? That's just a crazy thing to do. Yet, there's still a, a lot of, I think, lack of transparency in the nonprofit landscape that means that, you know, oftentimes people are still funding things that, that, that either have never measured what they do or even worse, have data that shows that it doesn't work. To start also, you, you mentioned the UN and its 17 initiatives. I'm just curious of the 17 and how on a pro rata basis, each is the recipient of a certain percentage of capital flows. In your opinion, what are the, which are the top three recipients? Which garner the most attention worldwide? 
Uh, it's a super interesting question, Jason. And I, I mean, I think I can only give you my opinion. I don't, it won't be. Yeah. It won't be based on fact. Based on you know, like I've worked with fifteen hundred plus families. Yeah, just last. anecdotally, um, perhaps like yeah, what you're seeing I mean, by I, way I, of I've UBS worked, clients. Yeah. So, so I've worked with about fifteen hundred plus families in the last seven years uh, in my time at UBS, and I tell you what, what, what I've seen is a bit of a transition. So I think education is always there, right? And that's uh, that's goal that's goal four. In fact, I, that's my goal because I, I'm dyslexic, couldn't read until I was eight. So the power of a good education to enable people to fulfill their potential, right? So, and I think there's always there's always been people focused on that because they see that pathway. And, and particularly entrepreneurs often and successful people, they look back and they go, gosh, if it hadn't been for that teacher or this, you know, I just wouldn't be where I am today, right? So, so I think that that's, that's a big area. And it's also a big problem. I mean, there's, you know, in a global context, there's like 250 million kids in school who still can't read at the age of 10. I heard a, a stat the other day likening it to imagine sitting on a bus for nine years and going nowhere. You know, that, that's the lived experience of a lot of people in school. So, so I think that is an area that is, has been a big focus. Obviously, healthcare, you know, just the provision of safe, accessible, affordable healthcare. There's about a billion people worldwide which just literally have, they, they don't even know what a doctor is, right? Like no concept of healthcare. And that's something that, that increasingly is being addressed. I would say the areas that have grown in, in significantly grown in interest, if not in execution, i.e. people are saying they want to do something but aren't quite sure where to go, is in this whole space of the environment. And, and within that, I include both, um, you know, uh, like conservation environment and oceans, uh, and also and also this concern around climate change as well. I think that's something that a, a number of people are saying, you know, this is an area that I want to understand better and see whether it's something that should should form part of my philanthropy. But there's others that are, you know, more nuanced. But I think uh, the goal 16, which is around justice, like a subset of that is is things like anti-trafficking. And, you know, that's something that I've, it's perhaps a smaller thing that people focus on, but I've found that when philanthropists engage with that, that issue and realize there's like 40 million people probably in some form of slavery today, and maybe as many as 5 million children in India alone in sexual slavery, it's kind of one of those problems that is gut-wrenchingly terrible. And then they're like, actually, I'm going to, I want to do something about that. So I say broadly, those are the ones that I've, I've, I've spent most time on. But of course, you know, we have such a diverse client base that you, we can end up, you know, with quite eclectic needs. The, the beauty, I think, of both the way that we work, but also the way you can approach philanthropy strategically is no matter what you want to focus on, you can do it either uh, uh, not so well or you can do it super strategically and, and maximize the impact you're getting in that area that you want to address. Jason, that seems to line up pretty well with just our, our own experience locally here in in texas i mean absolutely i hear i, ta- I hear come speak and i just want to run out and go do something <laughs> yeah absolutely tom you mentioned there at the end uh, maximizing and uh that kind of dovetails into something we also wanted to ask you about and that is the whole concept of social finance and you know this type of philanthropic investment that uh by the way ubs is playing a very large in fact leading role in terms of shaping the global ecosystem where particularly, and I think this is especially appealing to your entrepreneurs and your business owners who reinvest in the business and I'll invest a dollar and I'll reap two and a half, three dollars. Can you speak a little bit to uh, philanthropic venture capital, if you will, whether it be by way of loans or or some other uh, vehicle? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think the starting point behind this, right? Well, it's twofold. One is, as you said, you like often people who've, who've worked really hard to make their money, you know, they've, they've cost control is critical, like an, an early cash flow in a startup. I mean, I, I don't have a, a personal understanding of that, but I've worked with so many entrepreneurs who have drilled into me that, that kind of concept of cost, cost, cost control and looking after cash flow and really trying to, you know, get the most out of every dollar that they've got available, you know, either even on the revenue side or on the investment side. And and people bring that to their philanthropy. And I think what's, what's interesting in the context is that, is that you know, mostly, uh, you know, certainly in the, up until the end of the 90s, all philanthropy was a grant. So, you know, a grant is you, you give your money away. Hopefully, if it's like we've described and you're measuring your impact, you know that you're getting a good result with it. But ultimately, it's gone, right? You've given it and it's gone. And I suppose the idea behind social finance is, well, if there was a way of getting the same quality of impact, like, you know, I'm not compromising on the impact I'm getting. I'm still, you know, helping that child as deeply or I'm saving that life. 
but I could get that dollar back again and reuse it. Why would I not want to do that? It's a no-brainer, right? So, so, so that's at the heart of ultimately um, what we're trying to do in the social finance space. Tell us about social finance. It appeals to an entrepreneur, invest a buck, take, get three out. How do you assess it and, and maybe the growing prevalence of, of social finance? I guess the kind of, you know, the thinking behind social finance, right, is that up until the end of the 90s, like the only way that philanthropists thought about giving their money away for impact was a grant, right? You, you give your money away, great. Hopefully you've measured it as we've been describing it super strategically so you know the impact that you're going to get with that money. but actually you 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 know that's gone right and and obviously people have a finite amount of of resources to give away so then the opportunity cost of trying to choose one charity over another becomes more complicated but the 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 core idea behind social finance is this idea that you could say well if i could get the same quality of impact that I could get with my grant, right? So I could still see that child be educated to a certain level, or I could still save a life, but I could get that dollar back again to reuse it, you know, for more impact elsewhere. Why wouldn't I want to do that? It's, it's, it's just a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And of course, for an entrepreneur who's used to trying to get really high value for money within their business, and I've worked with you know, so many of them in, in my career, and, and like, you know, cash is king, you know, really focusing on cost control, try and get as more efficiency as you can. That kind of value proposition is attractive, right? Because who wouldn't want to get more impact with the dollars that they have available? And the core premise behind social finance is that, you know, we think we can do that in the philanthropic space. And one of the reasons for that is because... Ultimately, you know, philanthropy isn't just about trying to have an impact on an individual or in a certain area. It's also about trying to solve issues. And if we want to solve issues, we have to get to scale, right? So some of these problems that we're, we're, we're looking to try and address are just monumental in size. And in fact, they're much bigger than any one philanthropist on their own could address. In fact, they're bigger than all of philanthropy put together can address. I, I mentioned earlier the, the sustainable development goals. We need 25 trillion over the next decade to meet those goals, right? And and total global philanthropy currently is 2 trillion. We think it could grow to five um, within the next 10 to 15 years, but it's just not enough to use grants to solve these problems. So what does that mean as a philanthropist? What it means is we have to try and identify solutions that have evidence that they deliver impact and outcomes. So that's you know really critical but we also then have to drive those solutions to scale and ultimately when you start to think about scale there's only two pathways i think that you can get to scale one is is a is a market based pathway like for profit ultimately and the other one is is working in partnership with governments public funding but let's just take those those two and show how you can apply social finance instru- instruments to drive impact in those areas so looking at the market right We've used education as an example because I, I, I like it. It's, it's, it's easy to remember. Um, let's take those 50 million children globally who are not in school below the age, age of 11, right? So these are kids who are just missing out on their future. How do we get them into, in, into school? One way that we could get them into school is something called a low-cost private school, right? So there, there's, there's actually lots of businesses out there in different parts of the world that actually charge you know, as much as $1 or $2 a day for a fee for parents to pay for their kids to go to school. And those you know, families could be you know, fairly poor, obviously, but that's affordable for them in a you know, peri-urban slum of a, of, a country, uh, of a place like Nairobi. They can afford that fee. That low-cost private school can be invested in with philanthropic dollars, right? You could you could fund that school and you could feel quite good about it as a grant. Because it's kind of business, it's growing as a business. Well maybe if it's if it's successful, as the person who put up the risk capital, why not have a contract with them, you know, as a loan, for example, so that you recover that that initial investment. And and possibly you decide not to have an interest rate on that. So you can have a whole variety of of, of terms, maybe it's more concessional capital. But ultimately you're investing in a business model that that gets those fifteen maybe up to as many as fifteen million of those fifty million kids into school, but has a return of sorts. Another great example that we've seen um, that's not a loan instrument, an app actually in in uh, an app-based business in South Africa that was focused on early child development. And one of the issues with early child development, like nurseries, is that they typically go at the pace of the least able child. So the more able kids basically aren't getting stretched. So, so the idea 
behind this this app developer was that they wanted to have a an online tool that as the kid progressed on the game you know it was gamified they got harder and harder right so it was it was showing progression of their learning really young you know like two three four year old kids and their business model was to sell that app to parents who could afford it but to give it for free to disadvantaged kids so so that if they grow and are successful disadvantaged families should get access to it free and other families can pay for it. So it's kind of like a cross subsidy. And again, like the potential for scale for that as a digital solution to an early uh, early education is, is, is enormous. And, you, you know, the outcomes of, of, of helping disadvantaged kids get a, a good early education might be something you want to give a grant for. But actually, if it's super successful, why not share in the upside as a philanthropist so you can reuse your capital? So what we actually did with some philanthropists in that particular opportunity was we did something called a convertible grant where we made a grant that actually if the business gets to a certain size, it will convert into equity in the business. And if that business is ever bought, we will get a share in the upside to recycle that philanthropic dollar. So there's a, there's a couple of examples of, of social finance instruments in the for-profit world. Um, you know, other variants on that have been, you know, uh, going back to the low-cost private school. Some of those low-cost private schools good i.e they deliver really good quality education and they can prove it others you know they're selling a good quality education but they're not really proving it right so we wanted to differentiate between the two so we've offered loans to low-cost private schools where we said look your rate of return is seven percent okay so you pay a market rate of return if you scale as a business but if you can prove to us that children are learning in your school better than in comparative schools we'll reduce your cost of capital so we're incentivizing you to grow with with impact Okay, so so that gives you a few examples of, of how you can use philanthropic resources to actually support the market to do what the market doesn't necessarily want to do. Like the market wants to make money. Okay, but actually, if you can make impact profitable, then you can help you can help businesses grow and have impact as they grow, and your philanthropic investment can can be recycled and reused. Do you find that, for example, when putting together a portfolio to the extent that a traditional portfolio might have exposure to venture capital for a small piece, and then the general rule of thumb that angel investors and venture capital investors will consider, if I invest in these 10 opportunities, I'm expecting for nine to fail, again, very overarching general rule, nine to fail, one to succeed, and the one that succeeds will compensate for, and then some for the nine that went by the wayside. Do you find anecdotally that in your world that it's a similar ratio when taking this approach? Or yeah, that, better? So, so you know, that's a, su- that's a super good question. And I think with more of these impact businesses, like the ones I just described, it's going to mirror standard VC, right? But the weakness is you might not get this outsized return because the markets that they're scaling into are perhaps still nascent, right? right? So you don't have that capacity to pay for the failure. So then what tends to happen is you tend to go into slightly less risky initiatives, but and therefore the the, the, the return profile can get suppressed. And this is then where your trade-off as a, as a philanthropist is to go, okay, like I'm, I'm taking the kind of risk that I might take with VC or, bit, or maybe a little bit less, but I'm not getting compensated on the return. Do I still want to do that? And the answer is yes, if I'm driving amazing impact, right? So so the, the impact premium might be worth it. Now, I should be clear, this, this isn't the same as an impact investment fund that you might see as a standard investment, whereby all of the investments are delivering a, a market risk-adjusted return. Social finance is about being impact first. It's about saying, how can I have the same level of making, but get some or all or even more of my money back? Right, right. Now, the, the other side of this equation, where actually the returns are not like VC, they're actually much, much more attractive, is the other area, this whole space of public money and how public funds are used. Because again, if we think about scale, if we think about how we're going to you know, provide education at scale across the world or you know, some of these other social benefits, one of the places where, where we look to, particularly to reach the poorest and the most vulnerable, so remember I gave that example of 50 million kids not having an education, maybe 15 can be met by the private sector, but you still got 35 million. How do they get an education? Well, ultimately, in most countries, it's the government's job to pay for their education, right? But what we've seen all over the world is that government money is just often not spent that efficiently or effectively, right? It's not spent on things that have proven outcomes. In fact, in the US, a stat that I, I use a lot, we, we had some analysis from two Treasury Department officials that the 800 billion that's spent each and every year on social initiatives in the US 
only 1% is evidence-based, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the standard of evidence that I was describing, like like the evidence you need to bring in a, a new vaccine to market. And and why is that? Well, you know, money spent on political whim. It's often, you know, like the social programmers, it just doesn't have the same gating. Yet we think there's a, there's a movement, in fact, and it's been happening for the last decade to move the way public money spent from activity-based funding where you fund things and hope that they work you know so you fund teachers they they you hope that they turn up but in the cases we saw in Liberia you know they had 10,000 teachers on the payroll who were ghost teachers they never turned up to never turned up for work and they had a 15% literacy rate right it's no surprise but if you can move that model to governments paying for results right so so they only pay when a child has been proven to have got the right grade that they're supposed to have got in that year of school or they only pay when a life's been saved in the hospitals that they're they're funding or you know whatever it is that they want to pay for you they can decide right that can be validated by an external third party and ultimately the activity of providing educational healthcare or whatever it is that you're funding can be funded by risk capital now up to now, a lot of these kind of contracts where you're looking at governments paying for outcomes um, called outcomes purchasing in the US, it's called pay for success. Um, they've also been called impact bonds. But but really what they are is government backed outcomes purchasing contracts. So where the government's agreed to pay for a certain thing, if it's proven to have occurred, they've been capitalized, the risk capital has been put up by philanthropic dollars, right? So people have put money into these contracts. Then organizations like us who think we're good at this go and find nonprofits or social enterprise who we believe can deliver those outcomes. who have got a data set and a track record that they can deliver those outcomes. And then if they deliver it, we effectively get paid by the government. And if you over deliver, you get a return. So we've seen in some of these contracts, clients put in, you know, $100,000 of philanthropic capital, and within four years, it'd be worth $120,000 for them to recycle and redeploy. So essentially, then what's happening there is clients are using their philanthropic resources to drive the kind of impact that they would want to see with their philanthropy, like proven, meaningful impact, like one of our, uh, one of our uh, impact bonds outcome structures in India just reported after year two that the kids in those schools are learning twice as fast as the kids in the government schools right so, so oh. a massive differential right mm -hmm. and the philanthropist who's making that happen is getting their money back plus an, an effective irr of eight percent now i should say that is a philanthropic donation it's not money they can get back to use on spending for a car but again as we started out we know lots of people are putting money into philanthropic vehicles so so they're you know, lots of clients have money available in, in, in donor advised funds or foundations to use in this way. And this is a super cool way for them to, to potentially deploy it without having to give it away entirely. Yeah. Indeed. It's very, very interesting. I, I mean, I love this part of it. And I, <laughs> I think Jason, and I can keep going on and on, but, uh, you know, I, I think we're coming to the end of our program here, but I did, you know, just kind of picking up where you just left off there on return on investment. And you think about, you know, the difference between Im impact and, in input. So, you know, I think about return, the other ROI, which is return on inputs, I guess. I saw a, a very interesting video on a, a guy named Dan Pallotta several years ago. And I know that our uh, philanthropy team has um, worked with him together on some various programs more recently. And he, he really shed some light, like, you know, a lot of people look at these nonprofits, they'll look at, you know, what percentage of every dollar is going to the actual cause versus towards administration or other dirty things like marketing and <laughs> stuff like that. I was just curious if you had any, you know, thoughts around, around that. Yeah. I mean, I always find this funny. So like if your clients ask you to buy some Apple shares, mm -hmm. do they ask you how much Apple is spending on their head office in, in Silicon Valley? Right. No. Or like, <laughs> are they worried about, you know how much Tim Cook gets paid? Mm -hmm. No, like what they focus on is 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 the share price going up? Right. Was that a good buy? Was my dividend if it's being paid right? Like the fundamentals, the bottom line. And I think with philanthropy, that whole focus on admin costs is because people are looking at the wrong thing. You know, cost is obviously important. There's a factor in there, right? I'm not saying run away with cost, but actually. The, the bottom line in philanthropic investment is, is it having an impact? And at what price? Like, what price is the outcomes I'm, de I'm delivering? And that is what you should be fixated on. And quite honestly, so many nonprofits can't even answer that question that that, that should be the thing that, you, you know, you're concerned by. So, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with Dan in that sense. And like, you, you, you know, we want to be focused on putting, you know, 
unrestricted capital as far as possible into those organizations that have got a proven track record that they they can deliver outcomes and that they can go to scale and we need to we need to get behind them right that just is a is a shift that is beginning to happen but it's so ingrained that we want to judge nonprofits by uh, how much they raise and how much of that they 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 appear to spend on on things that we uh, you know that that we think are impactful without actually knowing whether that's impactful or not yeah no that is deeply deeply ingrained i know that my years i was very engaged with the make-a-wish organization here and you know one of the things that we always talked about is you know how many cents of every dollar is actually going to going to wishes right because the outside world was really focused on that and so i think there's going to take it's going to take some time and some education to kind of shed light on you know, really, and and for nonprofits themselves to be able to to be able to broadcast broadcast their actual return, you know, the impact that they're actually making. So, you know, I, I think that that's a good segue towards kind of our final kind of conversation piece, which is around the UBS Optimus Foundation, and um, you know, you did touch on that in the beginning of, of of the program here. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about Optimus at a high level, and and then we'll wrap it up, including its origins, Tom, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Um, so, so Optimus was founded actually back in 99 and it was primarily driven because some of our clients were like, do you know what? I'm finding this difficult. I'm finding it difficult. I've decided I want to give away some money, but actually choosing a nonprofit in an area that I have decided to focus on isn't straightforward. And it's not right. Like the, the whole nonprofit landscape is a bit of a wild west in all honesty. And what we've seen over the years is that like vast majority of clients are giving to things either because it's something that they're personally touched by as a cause or because a friend of has asked them to or they've gone to a gala dinner, right? Like, it's quite serendipitous how these things come together rather than being kind of scientific and, and really driven by the data. And I think what we wanted to do is just put some science behind how you pick what I call winners in the philanthropic landscape, right? So I'll give you I'll give you a, a good example. There's 59 global water nonprofits who are, who are seeking to address the, the same development goal around safe and accessible drinking water and, and, and sanitation, right? Like there's only two major airline manufacturers in the world. Like you've got Boeing for, and, and and Airbus, and that serves the entire globe in one in, in one industry. Do we need 59 charities to solve this issue? No. What we need to do is find the one, one, two, or three that are the most effective, that have got the best data set, and get capital into those so they go to scale. Going back to the point we were talking earlier about unrestricted funding, and Optimus is essentially a vehicle to do that. Right? It's it's a vehicle to do deep due diligence on different sectors and areas and make recommendations to our clients. And I think we're the only bank that does this. We're the only bank who's willing to take the risk, actually, of making a recommendation. But we don't see it as a risk. We see it as, as a service that's critical because, you know, it's actually part of wealth management. It's just, it's just different type of wealth that's being deployed and a different type of return that you're, you're searching for. And over the years, we've built up expertise in kind of four core areas that we think are the critical building blocks to enabling, enabling people to fulfill their full potential, right? To achieve who they want to be. And, and because actually to to really allow someone to, to, to achieve their full potential, you need to kind of intervene as early in their life as possible. We've had a, a, a focus on child-related issues, although that actually it's, it's quite broad now. So, so things like health is critical. So surviving childbirth, you know, the first few years of life. Obviously, that's pretty important. Um, there's a whole range of problems there. I mentioned a few of them already, like the idea that there's, you know, a billion people don't have access to to basic healthcare. How can you solve for that? We've got, you know, there's other big problems that people have never even heard of, like 17 million people or so die every year because they don't have access to safe and effective surgery, right? You know, who knew? We, we didn't even know that until three years ago when we had a client approach us and say, can you, you know, can we partner on looking into this issue? And it, and it was just amazed at the complexity of, of a problem that hardly anybody had focused on. But we ended up building a whole strategy in partnership with lots of stakeholders around the world, you know, other governments, other philanthropists, and and, uh, and now invested, you know, well over t- in excess of 10, 10 million plus in that in that one initiative, uh, in partnership with a few clients. Education. We spend a lot of time talking about education, but of course, if you survive childhood and you're you're healthy, you want to be well, ed- you know, well educated to, you know, thrive in life and go on and get a meaningful, productive job and like have make a contribution to the world, right? 
the the one thing that will ruin the outcomes of a of a child or of a of an adult even who is healthy and well well educated is any form of abuse right so having systems that control and track and and prevent abuse are critical and then of course the environment in which we live and grow up is really important like if you have a tsunami coming to take out your school and your hospital then you're you're pretty you know, you're not going you're not going to thrive right so 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 all of those things are really important and and that's where we've built up expertise then we then ask another question which is okay in those four broad areas where where could you have a the most catalytic effect right where, where could philanthropy really move the dial on a specific area and that's where we start to say well look, look you know all for, like to check child protection right all forms of abuse happen in the world right there's all sorts of issues but like where do we think we could we can we could solve a problem the fastest or, or really make the most progress particularly with philanthropic capital and there we've you know looked at things like um, anti-trafficking which i mentioned or another area that that people don't know a lot about is is this idea of um you know there's 8 million children globally in institutions right now like growing up without a family and we know from like years of of, of research um harvard lead, leading in this actually on brain science that you know love like having having people who love you and call and response is what makes your brain grow so you know every 3 months a child spends in an institution they lose a month of cognitive physical brain development their brains shrink so like getting kids into families fostered or adopted families is an amazing thing to do for them or uh, one thing a lot of people don't know as well is that actually 90% of kids living in institutions have uh, a living parent or relative they're not actually fully orphaned in that sense so they can in some cases go back home so building up systems for basically child protection systems which we have incidentally in places like the UK and the US we don't have in kids in institutional care you know that that was something from 50 years ago right so 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 that's an uh, kind of almost a low hanging fruit i would say like where philanthropists can can have an impact the other thing i'd say about optimus a, a final point really i suppose we've got we've got all those areas social finance is a theme across all of them like deploying capital in innovative ways like we've described but but the other thing that is at the heart of it is this idea of collaboration and collective right so we don't think that you can solve problems on your own like it's only when we work together with other philanthropists with the best nonprofits and social sector organizations and companies and indeed governments that we can find strategies to solve some of these you know hugely pressing social and environmental problems and that's why we've actually towards the end of this year we're launching three new collectives one is in that in that child protection space i mentioned another is in the environment and the other is in social finance where we're offering clients a three year almost like a i don't know like a an unaccredited mini philanthropy mba right where they they get to journey with other philanthropists and with us and with some academic partners we put together to to go on a learning journey and also an investment journey so they have to commit between half a million to a million dollars that gets invested into cool programs around the world and go and visit them and and, and just really see some of the strategic philanthropy in action together with their peers and, and i think that's that's a, a hugely uh, ex exciting new initiative that that we've uh, that we're about to launch and to give you an example of where we've seen this like work not not our work but in in the space like that this is really possible and i uh, why i'm so passionate about it is like if you take someone like polio in 1988 like there were 350,000 cases today is virtually eradicated and it's not eradicated because bill gates gave all his money in fact he didn't get involved for the first you know 5 7 years it was it was a movement of philanthropists starting to work together the rotarians got together and then they identified a strategy which was evidence based vaccine based strategy then gates got on board and then uh, and then gates and a, a movement managed to lobby several governments to put hundreds of millions into getting this vaccine rolled out and it's and it's that collection that movement of people who've er eradicated that one disease and we think that that is replicable across you know so many of the of the local and global problems our clients are, are passionate about and and that is really where optimus comes in is to try and identify what that can look like and bring that to our clients at UBS so they can they can join us on that journey which you know gets me out of bed every day love it well I'll, again just inspired in listening to you speak and all of the insight that you have and I'll I'll tell you um, and I think we have already but it bears repeating that the conversations that our clients have with you and your team and with Sarah and with Deborah and Judy they are through their lens perhaps the most rewarding conversations they have throughout the year Josh and I just as humans it, the same rings true for us for as advisors as well in our world, you always think of uh, the stereotypically thinking of numbers, stocks, bonds, et cetera, et cetera. But our time spent on this facet of a client's financial well-being and mental well-being has been extraordinarily rewarding. And uh, 
and thank you again very much for your time. Just uh, wonderful, wonderful insight. Yes, yes, Tom, thank you very much. You're very generous with your time. We, we thank you for that. I know it's getting late over there and uh, probably thinking about dinner. One of the most uh, rewarding things that I gain when I travel abroad is, is the food. So I'm just curious, what's, <laughs> what's for dinner tonight? I do, well, you know, I don't know if it's so much of a U.S. thing, although you do like your sausage for breakfast, but, you know, it, the Brits are known for sausages. So uh, tonight is a sausage bake, I think. Uh-huh. And, of course, like, my wife's a teacher and my kids are out all day, so I do all the cooking these days. So, yeah, I get to pick <laughs> the unhealthy meals for the evening. So, yeah, I'm looking for, I'm looking forward to my sausages. and But I might have to go for a run beforehand just to, to compensate the guilt. <laughs> or, or after, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, great. Any any parting thoughts here, Tom, on uh, advice for for clients that want to, you know, feeling called to, to to be more engaged in their in their philanthropic endeavors? Yeah. So I think my my parting thought would be, you know, focus on outcomes and impact and price for outcome. Like really ask deep questions around that and get into the details. Collaborate. Like no one can do this on their own. You know, whether that's with us or with other philanthropy advisors or other partners, but go out and learn from the people who've learned the hard way so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past because philanthropy is too precious a resource for us us to wait. And the third thing I would say is like, have fun, honestly. Like, I think, as you guys just said, like, this is deeply rewarding when we get it right. And I think there is nothing more satisfying to spend your resources and your wealth on than seeing people's lives being changed at scale in front of your eyes and that being as a result of you making good investments. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I would add there is we, we had a report, I remember free, a few years ago that talked about, you know, people that give money, it's rewarding, but, you know, if, if you're not engaged with the organization, you can really improve just your own satisfaction by number one, obviously giving your time or, or financial resources. But when you integrate, when you get involved and get engaged with the organization, you step it up a notch. And then if you get friends and family to get engaged with the organization, the level of satisfaction goes to the roof. And I think that was a, that was a really interesting thing that I learned from, from, from that paper too. So getting a crew together to, to get out there and and change the world is is awesome, and and those opportunities to meet other uh, philanthropists, like you said, I, th- I think is a critical part of that journey too. A hundred percent, and I think I think that engagement piece is is um, absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you got to give with your. I think I think in the past, philanthropies have often been about giving with your heart and maybe including your head. And I think what we what we advise clients is give with your heart, uh, give it with your head, like <laughs> look at it as an investment, mm-hmm. and then go in wholeheartedly. Right. That's a perfect way to end this. So, Tom, thanks a bunch. I'd give you a hug if you weren't across the world. <laughs> and, you know, it was so, it was so enjoyable. This is, uh, I think people are re- really going to get a lot out of this. Uh, this one, I can't wait to go live. So, thanks again. And everyone, uh, this is Josh Pottinger and Jason Georgianis. And remember this, know your options, be informed, and plan early. Until next time. Have a great day.